thank you for your word. I thank you for including it, uh, this chapter, as challenging as it might be. I thank you for the opportunity we have to be challenged by your word and learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a new pastor who was visiting the homes of different people he wanted to get acquainted with. And at one house that he went to, it was very obvious somebody was home, but no one came and answered the door, even though he continued to knock repeatedly. So he took out his business card and wrote Revelation 3.20 on the back of it, thinking he'd be clever. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And so the next Sunday, the offering was taken, and the pastor found that his card had been returned to him. And added to the cryptic, it was this cryptic message Genesis 3.10, so he looked it up in the Bible and it says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid for I was naked. (laughs) So, anyways, I've only used that three times, but okay. It's been five years, so I thought nobody would remember. (laughs) Well, I think we all understand that scripture is not, and it has never taught that poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. But the truth is, all of us have a certain amount of wealth, and the issue is our heart attitude towards money. It is the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. We also learn from Scripture that it is God who supplies us to enjoy all things richly in our lives. So as we've been learning throughout the book of James, James has given tests of genuine saving faith to validate or invalidate a person's claim to be a true believer. And so as we begin chapter 5, we see another test. And it starts with a very strong rebuke to those who profess to worship God, but in reality they worship their money. These first verses speak to the rich who profess to believe in Christ, but their true pursuit is riches. The same sins that characterize unbelievers can infiltrate the life of believers as well and apply to us. So judgment awaiting the ungodly rich is where we begin in chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your pleasure. So back in chapter 2, James had mentioned that it was the rich who blasphemed the name of the Lord by which they have been called. And it seems like he's talking to the same group of people here as we come to chapter 5. Unsaved people who profess that they are saved and have made a profession of Christ. But they already have a God and that is money. And it's a warning here to believers as well. Because uh, when we get more money, it's tempted, we're tempted to put our confidence in our money. And that is the wrong place for our confidence to be. So James tells the ungodly rich to weep and howl. To weep means to sob out loud like you would do at the loss of a loved one. But to howl is a word only seen here in the New Testament. It refers to screaming and shrieking. And why would there be such violent grief? because of their miseries that is, go- that is going to come upon them. So this seems to speak of incredible suffering and great distress, of horrific trouble that is going to come upon the unsaved rich person when they stand before the Lord in judgment. 
Jesus gave similar warnings in Luke chapter 6. So we know that having wealth is not the problem. It becomes sinful when the wealth is wrongly acquired or when it's used in a wrong way. So what sins of the godless rich bring upon them such severe judgment? Well, the first one is hoarding of their wealth. Riches that have rotted may refer to huge amounts of food that they hoarded that had gone bad. Garments were that outside piece of clothing that could be very expensive by the material, the dye, the embroidery, the jewels that they also sewed onto it. And that was subject to moths destroying it. And gold and silver can corrode or tarnish or rust. And James is making the point that it is wrong for a rich person to hoard what they have, whether it's food, clothing, or money. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. So James makes it clear how futile it is to hoard wealth of any kind. It will actually become the testimony against that person in judgment as it reveals the true state of their heart being covetous and selfish. James speaks of their flesh being consumed like fire, which does seem to be a reference to impending judgment of hell. Riches do indeed spoil, and people's attitudes toward life can turn to bitterness and disappointment, especially in areas related to money. I mean, we don't have to think very far, most of us, about the impact of money in families and deaths of loved ones and what goes wrong there. So besides hoarding their wealth, we read that it is in the last days you have stored up your treasure. What a waste it is to hoard, accumulating great wealth just for selfish gain. It demonstrates wrong priorities with no thought about laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. Wealth itself is not wrong if recognized as a blessing from God and is to be used in meeting the needs of others and uh, forwarding the gospel in reaching out to the lost. Another thing about the godless wealthy is that they cheated others. And this is all about exploiting people, in this case by withholding pay due to them as a laborer. Jeremiah 22 and Malachi 3 speaks about this as a very wicked sin that would bring on a great curse. They pay The pay that is withheld is crying out, shouts and screams for the evil being done to the people, not getting paid. The cries of those who were robbed reach the ears of God, who is the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies of the heaven, who one day will call his angelic army to act in judgment. The victims cry out for justice, and the true righteous judge will bring it one day. Then the rich are rebuked for their selfish lifestyle. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. It's quite a picture, isn't it? I think of fattening up an animal for slaughter. And that's what is pictured here. This is a total pursuit of pleasure, a life with no self-denial, living simply to gratify selfish desires. They fattened their hearts with what they had taken from their victims to simply indulge in their luxurious lifestyle. James warns of the coming day of slaughter, divine judgment that awaits them if they do not repent. One commentator put it this way, blind to heaven, deaf to the warnings of hell, 
insensitive to impending day of slaughter and judgment, the unrepentant, selfish, indulgent hoarders stumble blindly to their doom. And unless they repent, James warns they will experience eternal damnation. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The thoughtless, unjust acts of unbelievers are not forgotten by God. And just because it may seem that they get away with so much here on earth does not mean that they will escape judgment in the future. Another thing is that their wealth was gained by cruel treatment. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So not only do the godless rich people hoard their money, rob from the day laborers, and live self-indulgent lives, they actually put to death the righteous man. How that's done, we're not really told. Whether not getting any food, they died, or they brought them to court for failing to pay their bills. Whatever, there were victims who were innocent of any wrongdoing, who were righteous in character, who were murdered. Wealth is an opportunity to do good for others. Even true believers, though, can fall into the sin of loving their wealth. And that is why Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich in this present world. And I just want to stop and say that's every single one of us sitting in this room. You may think you're not rich, but trust me, compared to the rest of the world, you drove yourself here. You're not wondering if you're going to eat this week. You have clothes to put on. We are rich. So warn those, that would be us, um, the rich in this present world, not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Another scripture, if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. First Timothy 6. So, ladies, we need to learn from this to guard our own hearts from the danger of loving money and all the things that money can bring into our lives and able to give to us. Don't assume that you could never be tempted to wander away from the faith because of money. Sadly, many have ruined their lives because of the love of money and ruined relationships forever. So be on guard for your own hearts. Now, James transitions into facing trials with patience, which really is a natural transition. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. So after rebuking the ungodly rich 
who clearly were a part of this church. Um, in the first verses, now James shifts his focus from those who were persecutors to the persecuted. This section is about those who are suffering and what their attitude is to be in the midst of suffering, telling us the importance of having patience while you're in the midst of trials. James had written about rich tyrants who oppressed the righteous even to the point of murder. And now he begins to give advice to the believing victims and how to live in the midst of this difficult situation and the trials that come your way. This section refers to brethren, true believers who had the great hope of the second coming of Christ. This life brings heartache and pain. We all know that. And the longer you live, the more you know it's everywhere. But this life is the thing that's temporary in light of eternity. It is brief. We are waiting, awaiting the arrival of Jesus Christ, and that is our great hope. Everyone who has that hope purifies himself just as he is pure. So James illustrates his point about the need to wait and be patient by using different examples, the first one being a farmer. A farmer waits for the early and late rains so that his crops can grow. And you notice for the farmer, and it's always been this way, Everything is completely out of their control. They can't control too much rain, too little rain. Um, They can't control the situation. The early rains were October, November, late rains, March, April. So as a farmer had to wait patiently through all those months for the crop to grow, so believers are to wait patiently for the return of Jesus Christ. James says to strengthen their hearts. It means establish and confirm your heart. He's telling all believers to remember your pain and your troubles are temporary. The Lord is near. It could be any moment. We know God has delayed his return thus far because he is still redeeming people and calling out a people for his name. In the meantime, life can be very hard, but we have that blessed hope of his return, and therefore we have a hope to endure for the time that we're here on earth. We are to be patient and long-suffering as we wait not only for his return, but for his coming to rescue us when we have been wronged. Our hearts are strengthened when we know his word and we know his character. It is the Lord who supports our hurting hearts in every situation we face. And the Lord is the judge. Verse 9 goes on to say, You know, it's easy to complain when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. It can cause us to become impatient and complaining people. It is easy in the midst of suffering to look at others and wonder why they have it so easy compared to what I'm going through. And this is when bitterness and resentment can creep into our hearts. And it often starts with a grudge and can grow into resentment and bitterness, which taints every aspect of your life and perspective. To help us resist having a grudge, James reminds us that the judge is standing at the door. We as believers need to be reminded we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, where each one will be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, whether he has done good, according to all he has done, whether good or bad, 2 Corinthians 5.10. The divine judge will right every wrong one day. And the hope of Christ's return will bring an end to all suffering. So as we wait, he wants us to develop patience and endurance, which we saw from chapter 1 in our life. Now the example he gives next is that of the prophets, and you only have to review Hebrews 11 
that reminds us of God's choice servants and how they suffered and how they were patient and how they were faithful. They walked by faith. They endured evil treatment for speaking the Lord's truth. Mocking, scourging, chains, imprisonment, stone, sawn in two, put to death by the sword. It's a good to remember that we are not alone in our suffering. Many thousands have blazed the trail ahead of us. And they witness to us, you can do this. You can do this walk of faith. And they're an example to us. The Lord blesses those who endure. Verse 11 says, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What a great phrase. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Job endured and that is how endurance was built into his character. A person cannot persevere unless you go through a trial that requires you to persevere in the trial. There are no victories without battles. Blessings are for those who persevere through the trials. It is a comfort to know that God blesses those who have endured, who have patiently endured trying painful circumstances and situations. Job suffered such unfathomable trials in his life, and these trials tested his faith, And they proved him to be a genuine child of the Lord. His trials put an end to Satan's purpose, which was to mock God and destroy the faith of Job. Job's trials also strengthened his faith and caused him to have a better understanding of God and his great power. So it can be for us as well when we walk through suffering. The Lord has his purpose, which we may or may not ever know, this side of heaven. But God will strengthen and will richly bless his children when they suffer. And this is where the truth of Romans 8.28 comes to light. You all know it. And it's a truth that will carry us through the worst pain and suffering. Because we know God causes all things, good, bad, evil, ugly, unkind, all things to work together for good to those that love him. Well, the character of God gives hope in suffering. We see that last phrase of verse 11. The Lord is full of compassion and merciful. So he is limitless in his compassion. Not only that, he is so merciful. God is grieved when his beloved children experience suffering. But he allows it because of the greater good that is being produced by it. As I quoted, think back in chapter 1. What Johnny Erickson Tata had said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He hates pain. He hates sorrow. He hates those kinds of trials that we go through. But what it accomplishes in us and through us is what he loves. The great hope we have is in the character and the attributes of God that he is full of compassion. Remember, his mercies are new every single day. And he will never leave us and he will enable us to endure. So to sum up the points that James has been making, we can endure suffering and trials because we know the Lord is coming soon. It's imminent. We know he will judge and set everything right. We have examples in scripture of faithful servants who have gone on the road before us and endured to the very end. And he is compassionate and merciful to us, and he has a purpose in our suffering. So how are you doing on your walk 
through the trials that God has ordained specifically to be a part of your life experience. Are you enduring with patience? It's not easy. Are you growing in your trust and in your faith of his character and what he's really like? You know, we sing the song, I love to song, sing the song, Is He Worthy? And we say, yes, we, yes, he is, he is, he is. But do we really live out those words and how we respond to the trials that come into our life? Do we believe he is worthy? Is he worthy of your trust that he does what's right? Well, that moves us into verse 12, which says, stop swearing. But above all, my beloved, my brethren, do not swear. I have to stop. I just think of this silly expression from the Three Stooges when Curly was in a courtroom scene and had to raise his hand. You swear? No, but I know all the words. <laughs> so. But anyways, we know this isn't about that. Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. It was the custom of Jewish people in biblical times to swear by making an oath. As you know, it had become so ingrained in their culture. I mean, everything, instead of just saying, yeah, I'll be there. Oh, I, I, I swear by heaven. I swear by the temple. I swear by whatever. So as Jewish believers, they had taken this practice now into the church. So James makes it clear that oath-taking is unnecessary among believers. A simple yes or no ought to be sufficient as a believer is to speak the truth and keep their word. We've already seen in this letter the importance of our speech in chapter 3 as it reveals what's really going on in our hearts. It is a true test of a person's spiritual condition. Swearing, as I've already mentioned, is not about crude language, but rather the taking of an oath. It can be found throughout the Old Testament. The Bible doesn't forbid making an oath. Actually, we make one uh, when we get married. And many other times, if you have to speak up in a courtroom, you take an oath. Jesus addressed this in Matthew 5, <clears throat> because oath-taking had become a practice often done just to get out of something. It was like, fingers crossed, behind my back, I'm making an oath, but it's not going to really happen. So that's the kind of thing that was going on. So when a person swears by anything that God's in control of, they're bringing God into the oath. All conversation is to honor the Lord. Believers should have integrity with a simple yes or a simple no. Individuals who lie with their oaths prove once again that they do not have hearts that are right with the Lord and they will be judged for breaking their oaths. And that brings us to the power of righteous praying. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He must sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Well, there's no end to the thoughts and opinions and interpretations of this, uh, these few verses. We all know sickness and death came into the world the moment Adam sinned. And everyone born from then on has a sin nature, and everyone is born, and we're all dying. Scripture teaches that sometimes there is a direct relationship between personal sin and sickness. As was the case with David, Psalm 32, he was stricken physically ill because of his sin. 
Paul addressed that with the Corinthians. Some of you sleep, some of you are sick and sleep because you take the cup in an unworthy manner. So there's no question, some sickness is God's discipline to try to get our attention. But scripture also teaches that at times there's no relationship between personal sin and sickness, as was the case with the man born blind in John 9. We also see in scripture that it is not God's will that everyone is healed. I mean, honestly, if you thought that, then no one would ever die. We'd have a very crowded planet. But that is not the case. His grace is sufficient for the sickness that he chooses to allow into our lives. And often people misinterpret Isaiah 53 by his stripes or by his scourging, we are healed. But the context of that passage is speaking of spiritual illness and healing, not physical. And Peter reiterates this uh, he, when he wrote in Second in First Peter two, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So James has been talking about persecution and suffering. Now he speaks of the relationship of prayer and comfort and restoration in that context. <clears throat> Sorry. So prayer for the suffering. There are times when believers find themselves suffering in horrific troubles and afflicted, none of which is because of sin or God's discipline. And James commands believers to pray when they are suffering. God is the source of all comfort. He has commanded us to cast all of our cares on him. And the tense that's used here telling us to pray is the word that would mean continual pleading with God in prayer. Keep on praying. Don't stop. So when life brings you a crushing blow, when you are weak, when you are weary of it going on and on, don't ever quit praying. I love my dad's favorite hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And in the chorus, that simple phrase, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Now, if a person is cheerful, they are to sing praises to God. It doesn't mean that they're cheerful because they're necessarily healthy in body, but the suffering uh, plead to the Lord in prayer for grace and strength and comfort has been answered. In this case, they're on the other side, and they are to sing praises. Our singing should be an expression, whether life is good or not good, it still should be an expression of our spiritual life. And that brings us to prayers for the sick. In the Greek, the word sick means weak, to be weak. And in the Gospels, it's used to speak of physical illness. Uh, but it's also used in Acts and in New Testament letters to also refer to spiritual weakness or being weak in faith. So one thought that it seems from the context of these verses that we've just been reviewing, that the main thought refers to those who have grown weary and weak from all of the spiritual suffering and battles they face in suffering. They should call for help from the elders of the church. These same elders are then to pray over that person and anoint them with oil. Literally, it means rub with oil, which is not the same word used for a ceremonial anointing of oil. So in this case, the oil would refer to refreshing a person as was done by the woman who anointed Jesus, as was done by people, as Jesus said, when you fast, don't walk around with a gloomy face, anoint yourself with oil and wash your face. 
So the idea being that the weak and the weary need to be encouraged, need to be prayed for, need to be refreshed. Such prayer for the weary believer would bring encouragement, restoration, and that seems to fit with the verse, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Now another perspective on this verse is that the weakness is referring to a physical illness. An incapacitating sickness that can lead to death. It's used that way in John 4 and Philippians 2 where Epaphroditus came close to death as well as with Dorcas and Lazarus. So the sick person in this case is to call for the elders of the church. They're the ones who make the call and reach out to the elders of the church to come to their sick bed. No one with the gift of healing is asked to come. No faith healer is asked to come. No, the elders of the church, that their body, part of that local body, are there to call for them to come to their sickbed. And after that call has been made, the elders are to pray over that person and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Anointing, again, is still not about ceremonial uh, anointing, likely olive oil. Some said it has the idea of the Holy Spirit giving his healing power to answer prayer. Others think maybe there was some medical um, help through this oil. But the bottom line is the healing is in the name of the Lord. Because it is God who heals, not the oil. It is the Lord who raises up the person, not the elders. If sins have been committed, in other words, this person is sick because of God's discipline, and that's become clear to them, it shall be forgiven him when they repent. James now turns to the entire congregation saying, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So having open and honest relationships with fellow believers is so critical. Friendships and accountability provide a way for us to help deal with our ongoing struggles with sin. If illness is due to a specific sin and that individual confesses that sin as they are prayed for, they will be healed. They will be spiritually whole again. If the sickness is from human frailty, there is no guarantee of being healed. God may heal. He may answer, yes, I'm healing, but he may choose not to heal. Regardless of the view you choose to take, the conclusion is clear. We are to confess our sins, and we are to pray for one another. And what is so amazing is that the powerful and effective prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. Elijah is cited then as the example. He prayed earnestly, and God heard his prayer and answered his persistent prayer. So never stop, never give up. God can answer your prayers, and I love it that Long after we're dead and buried, he can answer those prayers 30 years after our death. James closes his letter by saying, If any among you strays from the truth, he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. Is James speaking of a backslidden person who has gotten out of fellowship with the Lord and needs restoration? Or is this a professed believer who has drifted away from the church because there was no real faith to begin with? Well, we know the word to stray means to wander, or wander away from the truth. And what's told us here is there is a great urgency to seek after a soul because God loves them and they need to be brought back to the truth. Ladies, we need to care about people enough that we care about their spiritual well-being. It's so easy to only focus on the physical well-being of somebody and fail to pray for the spiritual condition going on in the heart, especially when you're really ill and you're chronically ill. 
The battles are very spiritual. They are completely intertwined together. I challenge myself and you as well to take seriously the importance of persistent prayer. Prayer for the lost. Prayer for the wayward. Prayer for the suffering. Prayer for the weary. Prayer for the sick. Prayer for the discouraged. Prayer for the prodigal. Prayer for the self-deceived who need true salvation. And there's no shortcut. This requires time in your day set aside. This requires mental discipline and effort to pray and engage in prayer for one another. So will you block out a portion of every day to be a prayer warrior? Will you be honest about your own struggles and have someone that you can be accountable to if you are struggling with a nagging, continual, sinful habit? James has challenged us in so many ways in this book to have joy in the midst of our suffering, to guard our tongue, and so many other ways to not be prejudiced not look at people and make judgments because of their outward appearance. May each of us be a modern-day prayer warrior like Elijah. He is a man like us, a man whose prayers were heard and answered. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this wonderful book of James that we have just finished studying. I thank you for so much truth that's in here, Lord, and Your Holy Spirit is the one who can take and apply truth where it needs to be applied. So I ask you to do that work. I thank you for truth. I pray that we would really believe you are an unending source of compassion in our struggles as well as mercy, Lord. I pray we would live in light of that reality, that we would trust your attributes and your character and rest in the truth that you will set everything right, that you are coming again soon, and we have an incredible future. So help us to be faithful today in how we live, and to really live believing you are worthy of our trust today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies. And we start First John. So I hopefully you get all your packets everybody got. Good.